remember that bestseller from the 90s, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus? It was supposed to solve the whole man-woman thing. You know that you leave the toilet seat up while I insist on talking constantly about our relationship dynamic. But maybe the problem isn't planets. It's habitats. Water, air, earth. This week on Selected Shorts, we consider what it means to be out of your element with help from a frog prince and the exotic birds of Panama. Stay with us. I'm your host, Meg Wallitzer, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. There's a sense in which every story is a journey of discovery. We accompany a character or characters through some action or emotion that leaves them altered. In the two very different works on this show, characters are taken out of their element and their essential natures are exposed. In one, a classic fairy tale narrative is inverted, and in the second, a vacationing husband and wife occupy the same room but are living in two different worlds. We have big brains and all the abstract thought that comes with them. But really, when you think about it, what makes a human a human and not an animal? We're called the human animal, after all. When we get into the wild, how much of us reverts to our wild past, and do we become something much less civilized that operates on instinct? And if we take something out of the wild, what gets lost? On this show, we explore stories in which characters walk that line between the human and animal worlds, do their best to exist in one or the other, or even try to reap the rewards of both. When we talk about being out of our element, I can't help but think of its opposite, being in our element, because that too takes us far away from the usual world. A writer who's in her element, for instance, might get so deeply involved in her work that she doesn't even hear her kids in the next room screaming for mac and cheese, or so I have heard tell. We're fond of fairy tales at shorts. They are the building blocks of both fiction and childhood, after all. But we're even fonder of a sly contemporary take on the form. In the case of today's program, Robert Coover, the busy author of 14 novels and three short story collections, including Gerald's Party and A Night at the Movies. In The Frog Prince, Coover lets us see this classic narrative through a different lens. What if the Grimm brothers got it all wrong? What if sometimes a frog is just a frog, even when he's a prince? And his idea of happily ever after is not ours. And just a cautionary note for parents of younger children, this is definitely the grown-up version of the story, with a little bit of adult behavior hinted at, though mostly at the amphibian level. In the original fairy tale, the female heroine is a bit passive, but Coover offers up a wryer and more self-aware version. When we're looking to poke at stereotypes, we look no further than Parker Posey, queen of Christopher Guest's many mockumentaries, including Best in Show, and most recently, the miniseries The Staircase. Posey always seems both at home and completely out of place in any fantastical scenario, from folk festivals to dog shows. So here she is, in her element, with Robert Coover's The Frog Prince. The Frog Prince. At first, it was great. Sure, it always is. She cuddled a frog, wishing for more. And presto, a handsome prince who doted on her. It meant the end of her marriage, of course. 
But her ex was something of a toad himself, who had a nasty habit of talking with his mouth full and a tongue good for nothing but licking stamps. The prince was adorable. All the girls at the bridge club squirming with envy said so. Though you could still see the effects his previous residence had had on him, he had heavy-lidded eyes and a wide mouth like a hand puppet's. His complexion was a bit off, and his loose-fitting skin was thin and clammy. His semen had a muddy taste, <laughs> like the pond he came from. And his little apparatus was disappointing, but his tongue was amazing. It could reach the deepest recesses, triggering sensations she'd never known before. His crown was not worn like a hat. It grew out of his head like horns and sometimes got in the way. But his tongue was long enough for detours and tickled other parts on the path in. It gave him not so much a lisp as a consonantal slurp, <laughs> making gibberish out of his sweet nothings. But talking was never the main thing between them. She had discovered when he was still an amphibian and they were just getting into the kissing game that licking him would give her a stunning hallucinogenic high. <laughs> and that was still true, a metamorphosis later. But though she could get a buzz by licking the frog anywhere, she had to go looking for it on the prince, mostly in the nether parts. He wasn't the cleanest of princes, but the trip was worth it. She was transported into another realm, a kind of fairy kingdom, where she could have anything she desired. Wealth, beauty, a spectacular wardrobe, a winning bridge hand, cream-filled chocolates with zero calories, and love whenever she wanted it, which was most of the time, even when she was doing other things like presiding over a royal banquet or reviewing the palace guard, just wham, bam, grand slam, glorious. It all tended to vanish when the high wore off, but another lick and she was back again. Her suburban life began to pale by comparison, but whenever she asked the prince to transport her to his real kingdom, he always took her back to the pond where she'd found him. He was very happy there. He'd crawl into the mud, digging in until only his protruding eyes peered out, his crown seeming to float on the surface. At home, his eyes were sometimes wide awake and popping. At other times, especially when he was eating, they sank away and almost disappeared. But at the pond, he was always goggle-eyed. Now and then, he would unfurl his tongue and burp, and she would get into the mud with him. 
It wasn't the same as the hallucinatory kingdom, but it was still very nice. His frequent burping blighted his regal dignity somewhat. But at the same time, it was the most lovable thing about him. And when he burped, he always gazed at her in an especially affectionate way. <laughs> when he was still a frog, he had taken his skin off from time to time to eat it. Fortunately, the prince did not do that, though his long tongue did snap up anything that dripped or flaked off, which sometimes spoiled her appetite. About once a month, he removed his clothes and crawled up on her back and locked his skinny legs around her for several days, his long toes fondling her bosom his padded thumbs stuck to her armpits like Velcro. She couldn't shake him off, but had to wait until whatever it was that he was doing was done. It was probably obscene, though thankfully she couldn't see it. Certainly she had to launder her skirts and blouses afterward. It was difficult with the prince pasted to her back even to do her shopping or get her hair done. And she had to sit sideways on chairs and on the toilet. But the worst thing about these times was that she lost access to her high. If only she had a tongue like his. As soon as he dismounted, and before he could put his royal pantaloons on, she'd get her nose right down there drug fiend that she was, <laughs> and lick her way back to the fairy kingdom. And on one such day, or night, one can never be sure in that place, when she was pinned, spread-eagled by croquet wickets on the sunny, moonlit palace lawn for the pleasure of all, her euphoric self included, goodness, she was popping like his eyes did. He asked her in a slurping way if she was happy where she was. Oh, yes, totally, she exclaimed breathlessly. So he left her there and, if she understood him correctly, went back to the pond to crawl into the mud. Well, she missed him just as she missed her friends at the bridge club and, truth be told, her ex as well. But she was having too much wild royal fun to think about it or to think about anything really, highs being like that. It was fantastic and seemingly unending, but alas, nothing lasts forever, least of all ecstasy. And so one day, there she was at home again, lying like a deflated airbag on her filthy kitchen floor. She mopped the floor, bagged up the mess in the refrigerator, opened all the windows, and hurried back to the pond looking for the prince. She chased burps all day and all night, but he was nowhere to be found. The weather had changed. Perhaps he was hibernating. For a lonely year, she kept up the search at first 
somewhat desperately, kissing and licking any frogs she managed to catch. <laughs> but eventually, she resigned herself to the futility of her quest and sorrowfully abandoned it. She recalled then the prince's own sorrow and disappointment. He thought this would be more fun, he'd confessed to her once in the mud. Of course, she'd been hurt by that and pretended not to hear him. But she understood now, as she should have understood then, that he had not been an enchanted prince turned into a frog, but a frog turned into a prince. And all he wanted was to be a frog again. In the end, she got in touch with her ex and told him that she had been hooked on a weird drug, but it kicked it now. <laughs> and if he'd like to come back, she'd welcome him. He was also lonely, smoking and drinking too much, his own affairs having come to nothing, and so, gratefully, he returned. And they found a certain contentment, living more or less happily ever after which is what now is while one's in it. was Parker Posey with way too much information about licking frogs. I'm Meg Wallitzer. I love the way this story turns fairy tale tropes on their heads. Fairy tales are pressed upon us when we're very young, teaching us about good and evil, cowardice and courage, etc. But if a wildly ingenious writer like Robert Coover riffs on a fairy tale, we may find ourselves out of our usual fairy tale element and in a whole new kingdom. When we return, chasing birds and losing control. You're listening to Selected Shorts, Recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Can't get enough of Selected Shorts on the airwaves? Join us live on tour. This season, we're taking some of our favorite stories and actors coast to coast, with stops in Henderson, Nevada, Dallas, Texas, Irvine, California, Glen Ridge, New Jersey, Greenwich, Connecticut, Albany in our home state of New York, and more. Check out our website for a full list of dates and ticket links. We can't wait to see you there. Our second story about finding your element is Chasing Birds by Christina Henriquez. Her novel, The Book of Unknown Americans, was a critical slam dunk. Other works include Come Together, Fall Apart, a novella, and stories. We read her devastating border tale, Everything is Far From Here, on an earlier shorts and are happy to welcome her again. 
Chasing Birds was presented at an evening of avian-themed stories hosted by the novelist Amy Tan. And here she is commenting on the story from the stage at Symphony Space. It's not about bird behavior, but the behavior of birders. And while reading this story, I often found myself laughing out loud. I was thinking about my poor husband who has to follow me on these bird expeditions. You know, that's one of the criteria for where we go on vacation, birds. The story takes us to a pivotal moment in a marriage. Mismatched intentions reveal the fissures that underlie a married couple's habits. It takes risk to break out of them, but at what price? That was novelist Amy Tan. Now we'll hear Chasing Birds, read by the Tony Award-winning actor Marianne Plunkett, whose many credits include House of Cards and Richard Nelson's 12-play cycle, The Apple Plays, in which she starred with her husband, J.O. Sanders. Chasing Birds. Maybe it had been raining for years. By the second night, it was easy to feel that way. They had come to this spot in the heart of Panama two days ago, and even then, it had been raining. There was no sign of respite. It was as if they had come to a different universe where threads of rain were laced through the air, as if rain were just part of the atmosphere something that had always been there and always would be, as if rain here was simply a fact. The corrugated zinc roof that stretched over their room acted like a giant drum, exaggerating each ping of dropping rain until it sounded like pebbles were crashing from the sky. A ruffle of thunder unfolded. June closed her eyes. She hoped the roof wouldn't cave in, Then she remembered that earlier that day, she had leaned her whole weight against a window and it hadn't shattered the way she thought it might, so maybe the roof would hold after all. Harv, June whispered. The room smelled like old, wet washcloths. Harv. She waited as another surge of thunder reeled across the sky. Harvey she said, loud enough to be heard. He didn't move. Harvey, she shouted, but the pounding symphony on the roof drowned her out. I want to leave, she screamed. The city had leaped up and taken June by surprise. She was expecting something smaller, more rural. But after they rented the car and started driving, she saw a huge, bustling capital, poor but inescapably vibrant. She peered out the tinted windows of their small car, her purse tight between her knees as Harvey drove and fiddled with the air conditioning. There were more billboards than she had seen anywhere, clumped along the side of the road, many of them blank, many of them peeling. Banks and hotels and apartment high-rises rose up around them, everything built into hills of untended, tall, wispy grass freckled with tiny flowers. They didn't get lost, not once, something Harvey was extremely proud of. When they pulled off Avenida Balboa and into the roundabout in front of the Intercontinental Miramar Hotel, it was clear they had come into a wealthy pocket of the city. 
The glass buildings were triumphant and imposing, and the giant, delicate arms of construction cranes swayed over them. Harvey handed the car over to the valet. And where will you park it, he wanted to know. The valet pointed to a lot at the side of the hotel, the front lip of which dropped straight down into the bay. Well, make sure it doesn't fall in there. This is a rental, Harvey said. And the valet nodded. It's, it's, it's not uh, my car, Harvey said, as if he were talking to someone hard of hearing. The valet nodded again. It was hard to tell whether he understood. The next morning, while they ate fried corn cakes and ham at Restaurante Boulevard, the waiter told them that the very thing Harvey had been afraid of had happened just last week. The valet hadn't used the parking brake, and the car had rolled right off the edge, plunging into the water. The waiter laughed. The car tried to escape. It wanted to swim, he said, and Harvey and June just nodded. They were in the city only one night, but it was enough time to feel overwhelmed. Appleton, Wisconsin, where they lived, or where June had spent her whole life, suddenly seemed so tidy and manageable in comparison. Here, the city felt boundless around her, as if she were no more than a small crumb in the center of it and it ebbed in concentric circles around her and around her endlessly outward. It seemed so easy to lose the sense of your own place in a city like this, to lose the sense of your place in the world entirely. But then, ah, they were out. After checking on the car from the window at least 15 times during the night, Harvey retrieved it and drove them away. They had come to chase birds, after all. One night in the city, that was for June, who had said before they left that she wanted it. She wanted to see something in Panama besides birds. And she had wanted the possibility of romance, staying in a hotel in a foreign country with her husband. But Harvey had drunk too much wine with dinner and fell asleep as soon as they returned to the room. But there was still time, June reasoned. They were switching hotels, but there would still be the romance of a foreign country. The air conditioner in the car blasted stale, humid air. June re-knotted the scarf in her hair. She had applied lipstick this morning, something she never did. It, it was a shade of coral, and she had purposely kissed Harvey on the cheek and then tried to be coy, saying, oops, oops, I left a mark, smudging it clean with her thumb. Harvey had seemed annoyed, <laughs> rubbed his skin with the heel of his palm, and then went to the checkout desk. As they pulled away from the city limits, June stared at raised red hills, the land in the rain turned to the color of rust. Palm trees hovered over them as they bumped along roads, missing chunks of pavement. When they arrived in Gamboa, it was still raining, long dashes of water impelled from the sky. Ah, this is it, Harvey announced, stopping the car on a gravel pass, the tires crunching as if they were chewing the ground beneath them. June craned her neck and looked up through the car window. They would be staying in what used to be a radar tower occupied by the U.S. Air Force, 
but which had been transformed into a hotel. The rooms flush with the soaring canopy of trees and the rainforest surrounding them. What if there's lightning, she asked. Then there's lightning. Harvey peered in the mirror and smoothed the hairs of his beard with his fingertips. Do you really think it's safe? He didn't answer. Harvey, safe? Uh, no, but that's the point. It's a risk. It's an adventure. That's why we're here. He squeezed her arm. Oh, she said. Come on, Harvey prodded, and before June knew it, he was out of the car. This was their first trip together outside of the United States, not including the time they went to the Canadian side of Niagara Falls during their honeymoon three years ago. When she was young, June had vacationed with her parents to places like Charleston, Napa Valley, and Annapolis. Over the past three years, camping had become June and Harvey's primary lure. June bathing in glassy lakes and drying herself on warm rocks while Harvey hiked and chased birds. She used to ask him to join her, describing how they could paddle out through the water, their chins skimming the surface. He told her simply that he preferred the air to the water, but in time, she learned that he said it only because he didn't know how to swim. It's one of the few vulnerabilities, he would admit. Bird watching in Panama was something Harvey had learned about in an email from American Airlines. The email claimed that Panama was home to over 950 species of birds. It said that Canopy Tower in Gamboa, near the canal, was the best place to see them. They bought new luggage and ordered passports and listened to a set of tapes that June had checked out from their local library with the aim of learning Spanish. Now, the only phrase she could remember was, let's go to the discotheque. <laughs> Vamos a la discoteca. She'd been so excited about traveling, though, excited about a getaway with Harvey. In the beginning, she had thought camping would be that. Harvey and she, under crisp black skies, dotted with stars, cuddling together in sleeping bags. But it was always more practical than that, less tender. This trip to Panama would be different, she was sure. The room was small and clean. It was shaped like a piece of pie with the tip cut off. Two twin beds were pushed against the outer walls, following the angle inward until the bottom corners of their mattresses almost touched. A ceiling fan hung overhead, and nearly the entire curved wall behind the heads of the beds was made of glass, so that from their perch in the tower, the treetops came up to their feet, a luxurious green carpet that stretched for miles. It's, it's, like, it's like a treehouse, Harvey said, dropping a suitcase on one of the beds. He was giddy. The day was bright, despite the rain. June nodded and sat on the opposite bed. Drops of water from her wet hair down her neck. Harvey had already located his binoculars. June had bought them for him two Christmases ago, but now she wished she hadn't. She was surprised at how annoyed she suddenly felt. 
She watched him draw the lenses within a hair breadth of the glass wall and then slowly move his head up and then down. Don't get too close, she said. To what? The glass. I, I, I don't want you to push through. He didn't say anything. She sighed and ran her palm over the stiff bedspread. This is a nice place, she said. I'm glad we came. She was trying. Harvey lowered the binoculars and turned around. His sunglasses dangled around his neck from a yellow foam strap. See, it'll be fun. The room is nice. There's a great view. Did you ask for a room with a queen bed? Well, I didn't specify. He had turned from her again. There's supposed to be hundreds of tanagers and flycatchers out here. If we're lucky, we might even see a rufous-breasted ground cuckoo. The next day, Harvey went out in the rain with the guide, Raul Sanchez de Llerenas. Harvey put on a bright orange poncho and stuffed tissues into his shorts pockets to wipe the binocular lenses when they got soaked. But when June suggested he ask Raul about getting some galoshes, he refused and insisted on wearing his loafers. June promised Harvey that she would go out with him tomorrow. The rain would have to let up by then, she said, even though as she said it, she knew it probably wouldn't. June was pleased to find a library in the lobby or something that passed for a library in the room that passed for a lobby. As she stood in front of the bookcases and ran her fingers lightly over the spines of the oversized volumes. They were mostly ecological guides. A few novels lined the bottom shelves, but they were all in Spanish, so she replaced them one by one. Finally, June selected a book with color photographs of moths. She had the lobby to herself. She stretched open a hammock strung between two poles, pulling its sides out like an accordion, and settled into it cautiously, afraid that it wouldn't hold, afraid that it would pull the posts down and the entire tower with it. Eventually, she relaxed and opened the book, resting it on her stomach. A few minutes later, she heard footsteps. She sat up as quickly as she could, the hammock swinging away beneath her and rolling her off, and she clutched the book to her chest. A hotel employee smiled at her and nodded. She nodded back. He leaned sideways and peeked at something on the desk, fanning one paper aside to look at the one underneath. Then he walked toward her. You read? He asked in English. Yes. It is good? June moved her arm from where she was still clutching the book to show him the cover. Moths, she said. He appeared only slightly younger than she. Thin filaments of silver running through his dark hair. He wore khakis paired with a green polo shirt, the hotel's logo embroidered on the chest. And he smelled like talcum powder, like something utterly dry in the midst of all this rain. Polias, he said. He stared at her, and she realized he was waiting for her to repeat it, that he was trying to teach her something. Polias, she said. He smiled again. He didn't show his teeth when he smiled, but his eyes crinkled at the corners. Then, I see you at dinner, he said, and walked past her. June turned to watch him. Where was he going? 
Where was there to go? She sighed and returned the book to its spot on the shelf. She wandered to the window to look out. She remembered telling Harvey yesterday not to push on the glass in their room. Out of nowhere, she had the urge to do it. She spread the fingers of her right hand like a web and touched her fingertips to the glass pane. She pushed gently, then a little harder. Nothing happened. She flattened both palms against the window and leaned her whole weight on her hands, her thin body at an angle, her arms bent until her chest was brushing the glass. When finally she stood up straight again, she felt shaky, not herself, as if she had just walked a tightrope or dashed across a busy street. By the time Harvey returned, June was napping on her bed. Harvey woke her when he walked in and stood over her, drops of water sliding off the tips of his poncho and onto her elbow. She had fallen asleep with a butterscotch candy in her mouth, and when she opened her eyes, she felt it stuck to the inside of her cheek. She worked it loose with her tongue and sat up. Hi, Harvey said, grinning. The inside of her mouth felt thready, like a shag carpet. Oh, how was it? June asked. She felt happy to see him. Harvey began peeling clothes from his body. It was incredible. If I started to tell you about all the birds we saw, I would be talking until tomorrow. Harvey propped open his suitcase lid. He rummaged through dry clothes. June rubbed her eyes and noted with vague despair the sorts of things Harvey had packed. Sneakers, boots, a windbreaker, a multi-pocket vest, field guides, film canisters, binoculars, extra lens caps. She had packed perfume and lipstick and a new nightgown. Uh, did you make notes, she asked, in your journal? Yeah, of course, of course I did, but I think you had to be there. It was absolutely incredible. Harvey was sitting on the edge of his bed now, shirtless, pulling off his sopping socks. He propped up one foot at a time on his knee. June stared at the bottoms of his feet. They were wrinkled like the rippled surface of a lake. What have you been doing? He asked. Nothing. Anything good in those magazines? He pointed to a short stack of cooking magazines June had brought with her on the floor next to her bed. She was a chef by trade, though she had worked in a restaurant only briefly, and since then had taught cooking classes at a community center in Appleton and at private parties. That's how they had met. Harvey was attending a class under June's tutelage. And typically, when men enrolled in her class, they did so to impress a woman, and Harvey was no exception. Because of his age, early 50s, she'd guessed, June had assumed he was there to learn to make something for his wife. He told her after the first class, though, that he'd been divorced for years. Back in the sea, he'd said though he'd been hooked recently by a French professor at the junior college where he too taught. When he said, you see, it's like that saying, lots of fish in the sea. That's what I was referring to. June let out a snort of laughter and then hid her face. <laughs> right, she said, when she had composed herself. But still, she found him attractive, 
And she was lonely, so when he showed up in her class three weeks later to announce that he'd been released by the French professor back into the sea and to ask if June would like to go out to dinner, she said yes. I learned how to say moth in Spanish, she said. Harvey pulled off his wet boxers and sat naked on the bed. What is it? Polia. Yeah, I, I think maybe I knew that. No, you didn't. How do you know whether I did or not? She sighed. Harvey shrugged. Time for a shower. Dinner's at eight tonight. I think maybe I knew that, June said. Ha <laughs> ha, funny girl. Harvey shouted at the ceiling and walked into the tiny bathroom at the tip of their pie-shaped room. When they got to the dining room and sat down, June felt herself looking for the hotel employee. There was something comforting about knowing someone else in this strange country, even if she hardly knew him at all. Among the maybe 10 people at the table, he sat diagonal from her. The hotel was run like a bed and breakfast. Everyone, even the staff, ate together. During dinner, while Harvey was preoccupied talking to a guest from Germany, the employee asked her name. Schoon he said after she told him. June, 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 he nodded. June hoped she hadn't embarrassed him, but he didn't say anything else to her after that. Later, when everyone had finished, June waited for Harvey in the hallway leading from the dining room. She would have gone to the room herself, but she realized on the way there that only Harvey had a key. She was considering going back to ask him for it when the hotel employee passed her in the hallway. He stopped when he saw her. You are okay, he asked. June nodded. The hallway was a hazy amber color from the dim floor lamps. She could hear Harvey talking from where she stood. It is your husband, the employee said, pointing down the hall. Yes, he is lucky man, June blushed. Where are you from? Uh, Wisconsin. He wrinkled his eyebrows. You speak Spanish? She shook her head. Little? He held two fingers close together and squinted, questioning, teasing. Vamos a la discoteca, June said. <laughs> she shrugged her shoulders apologetically. The man laughed. See, sí, vamos a la discoteca, we dance. He grabbed her by the waist, holding one arm in the air and clasping his hand around hers. As they moved, June could feel the warmth from his soft stomach against hers. He hummed softly and pulled her round. She breathed in his powdery scent as their inner thighs rubbed over each other, as he turned them and hummed. And then he stopped dropping her hands, laughing. I'd dance with you anytime, he said. June was beaming. She could feel the heat in her face. Okay, she said. Okay, bueno. He reached to her hand, dangling at her side, and squeezed it. Shoon, he said. She did not run into him the whole next day. She told Harvey she wasn't feeling well, just a headache, and that he should go again birdwatching without her but she wanted to look for the hotel employee. She just wanted to see him, at least, even if they didn't talk. She sat in the lobby for hours, but he didn't appear once. Another couple traveling from Australia checked in, but someone else helped them with their bags. 
By dinner, she felt mopey. There was a new forcefulness in her annoyance when Harvey returned, sopping wet, raving about birds. He was so busy bopping around, jotting notes in his journal and making sketches, walking away from the page and squinting down to check their accuracy as if he were a real artist, that he didn't even ask how she was feeling. June sat on the bed, flooded with irritation, not quite sure where so much of it had come from all at once. She remembered screaming the other night that she wanted to leave. At the time, she had meant Panama. Now, if she were to say it, she thought she would mean him. Just like that. Later, at dinner, the hotel employee was again diagonal from her at the table. He said, shoon, cordially, nodding at her. Harvey laughed at him, and June eyed Harvey angrily. Harvey kept his arm around her until the food came, though he wasn't looking at her. He was again talking with the German next to him. She was an armrest, sitting silently at a table. She glanced now and then at the hotel employee, but he gave away nothing. Finally, between spoonfuls of rice pudding at dessert, she asked him, uh, what's your name? Diego, he answered. And then he stared at her, it seemed, for a whole minute, even after she had gone back to eating. It would have been easier weeks later when she was back at home, if she had been able to convince herself that she was up in the middle of the night trying to find ice and she had run into him, or that she and Harvey had gotten into a terrible fight and she had walked out of their room in a fury, slamming the door behind her, forgetting she didn't have a key. But the truth was that she went willingly, eagerly, that night, after Harvey was asleep in his bed, June redressed and padded down the dark hallway. She knocked on Diego's door and woke him. She was praying he wouldn't ask how she had found him because she didn't want to admit that she had followed him after dinner that night to a different part of the hotel where a few of the employees stayed during the week. When he opened the door, he was wearing athletic shorts and a white undershirt. He said, you are lost? It was such a simple question. Yes, she said. I take you back, he said. He started to close the door behind him and step out into the hall. June threw her hands on his chest and said, no. He appeared startled. There is a problem, he asked, with your room? I get the manager. She felt frustrated. She wanted him to understand her, why she had come. This was the sort of thing she would never do. And now that she was doing it, she wanted it to go perfectly, to go better than this. Can I come in? She asked finally. Yes, please, he said, and opened the door for her. The room was decidedly small, but very neat. He patted the bed and invited her to sit. He stood in front of her, his back against the wall. Neither of them said, anything. Enormous, bloated minutes passed. And then Diego stepped toward her and took her hands in his. She was crying. She felt so foolish. He wiped her cheek with his thumb. You miss something, 
he said. I I'm okay, she lied. He smiled. I see all the time the guests get sad. They miss their home. I just, I, th I just thought it would be different from this. Panama? No, no, Panama is very nice. Diego nodded. The trip, June said. I thought the trip would be different. What it was you wanted? I wanted it to be romantic. June knew she shouldn't have said that. She knew it sounded too much like an invitation. But wasn't that what she was doing here? In his room? Diego leaned down and kissed her. June could smell his cologne. When they pulled apart, she wondered briefly if this happened to him often. If he danced with all the tourists in the hallway and kissed them in his room at night. But then he said, I, I'm sorry, has been a very long time for me. And she felt a hazy sense of relief. They stared at each other for a while. June was amazed at how much she wanted him to kiss her again, but he didn't. He said again, I'm sorry. June stood. Will I, will I see you tomorrow, she asked. Tomorrow, no, no, I, I go home then. He told her that he lived in a place called El Rompio and that he had an aunt there and two dogs. He took a bus on the weekends to see them. He explained that a weekend staff person would come and would need his hotel room. When he said it, when she realized that she would not be able to sneak to his room again tomorrow night to see him as she surely would have, something caught in her throat. What time? She asked. Uh, the bus come at three o'clock, he told her. It had taken everything June had to return to her room but she had done it. The whole way back, she replayed the encounter in her head. Harvey was snoring lightly when she opened the door and climbed into her bed. The rain pattered on the metal roof, though she hardly heard it. The guide was leading them to Pipeline Road. This was the exact place, supposedly, where a world record number of birds had been spotted. Every so often, Raul Sanchez de Reynas would stop and point to something in a tree. Harvey would look quickly through his binoculars and then murmur, nod. The first few times he offered the binoculars to June, too, but she always shook her head, and by now Harvey had stopped offering. The humidity was oppressive. It was still raining but under the umbrella of tree leaves, only sprinkles spit through. June hung back, staring at the footprints she made in the mud with her galoshes. She had come out today because she felt guilty about last night. It was the only reason. She never saw what Harvey saw, a blur of color darting through the air, a speck of something unknowable in a tree. It was a mystery to her. But on the trail, all she could think of was Diego, when she would see him again, how she could possibly see him before he got on the bus today. June suctioned her galoshes out of the mud when she heard Harvey calling her name. She walked toward him. When she caught up, she learned that Raul had arranged for them to take a small boat across the river toward the canal. She wanted to tell them that her socks were soaked, or 
claim again that she wasn't feeling well so that she could leave and go back to the hotel. But Harvey kept repeating, the Panama Canal. It's the eighth wonder of the world, June. And it was clear that he wasn't going to let her miss it. She followed Harvey and Raoul through the dense thicket of trunks and fronds, everything rich with greens and browns. Small, colorful frogs clung to twigs. The tinny sounds of the rainforest echoed around her. There was only one life vest when they got to the boat. Raoul handed it to June, even though Harvey tried to grab it first. <laughs> only a precaution, Raoul assured him. June's bright orange poncho stuck out like wings under the bulky vest. The boat, a small wooden canoe-type contraption, pulled away from the shore. June was quiet, seated on a wooden plank, cupping her kneecaps with her hands, squeezing them as if she were trying to break through the skin with her fingertips. She could feel the rain now that they were out on the open water. It screamed down, stung her skin. The river was choppy, rough. The front of the boat skated up waves and slapped down against the surface again and again. Raoul steered the boat into them head on. June said, I I've never seen waves like this on a river. Oh, not waves, just the water moving, Raoul said, and clapped his hands to imitate their motion. But whatever they were, they were more than glorified ripples, the spine of each cresting with foam. June felt a little sick, but she wasn't sure it was because of the motion. The boat struggled farther from the shore. Raoul looked back from his post and shouted, this is fun, no! The boat rolled to the side and Raoul turned back quickly to straighten it. Harvey gripped the plank where he sat. June wondered if in his life, Harvey had ever had this little control over anything if he knew what it was to be tossed and rocked by something out of your hands, if he had ever experienced smallness. A patchwork of lightning flared in the sky. Can I have your life vest, Harvey said. His face was pale. What? June, you know I can't swim. Please. A bird swooped overhead. Harvey loosened his hands from the plank and raised his binoculars. What was that, he said. <laughs> June looked off to her side, feeling the churning of the water under her. She saw through a lilac haze enormous ships lined up to pass through the canal. A swift, June heard Raoul reply. Ah, oh, white-collared swift, Harvey asked. June sighed. She took off her life vest and laid it on the damp floor of the boat by Harvey's feet. Harvey would see it when he stopped peering at the bird for long enough. How many times had she wanted to tell him to stop looking up? Look at me! He still had his head tilted back at the sky when she jumped. The water, disarmingly warm, smacked against her. She started swimming instantly. 
The waves jerked her back a little each time she moved forward. She didn't look back, but she heard Raoul shouting, and she assumed he had jumped in after her by now. She pulled hard with her arms, digging through the water, swimming toward the shore, toward the hotel. She felt the best she ever had, a feeling she would never be able to explain to anyone. Not to Harvey, who tomorrow on the airplane would keep asking her over and over why she had done it. Not to Diego, who would smile warmly when he saw her drenched. She swam without knowing what would come next. The rain shooting down, her poncho floating like silk under the water, her body fighting to get her to the shore. And while she fought, she finally understood something about Harvey what it meant to him to chase something like a bird, something graspable, but beyond your grasp, something fluttering in the distance, something surprising and new and rare. That was Marianne Plunkett performing Chasing Birds by Christina Henriquez. I'm Meg Wallitzer. This story is deliciously unpredictable. The husband seems a little bit clueless, but his childlike appreciation of the birds is engaging. The woman seems to be a mystery even to herself, and her final breakthrough has less to do with the appeal of a sympathetic stranger than with her need to both get into her natural element, the water, and to swim toward unattainable romance. If only this couple had looked in each other's suitcases before they went away, they'd have seen that they each had a different idea about this vacation. And extrapolating from that, they might have understood what each other needed and wanted on the longer voyage of their life together. Plunkett, too, was captivated by the story and shared her thoughts with us before her reading. The language in it is music and the juxtaposition of birds and water, air and water, uh, two people who have, one is sort of the air, the birds, the other who actually lives, her soul's water, and a couple, do they survive that way, and how do they live that way, and the discoveries, and the release, and the freedom of finally, you know, a beautiful image for the end, where she, who is the water person, is swimming, and you realize, well, she's flying, and her husband, who is the bird watcher, and is obsessed with that passion, but she is flying through the water. And I just, it blew my mind, just the imagery. And she has a poncho, because the rain is coming from the sky. So everything's from the sky, water is coming. And everything comes together. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. That was Marianne Plunkett backstage at Symphony Space. These two stories ask us to think about what it means when we say that we, or someone or something else, are in our element. The meaning can be literal. Fish gotta swim, birds gotta fly, but also transcendent. If you are in your element, you know who you are and what you are meant for. I'm Meg Wallitzer, and among other things, I'm meant to be hosting Selected Shorts. And if you too want to be part of our show, then please check out the Selected Shorts writing contest. Every year, one of your favorite writers chooses a lucky winner 
and the prizes are, I am in no way biased, amazing. $1,000, publication on electric literature, an actor performing your story at the closing night of selected shorts, and a free writing class with Gotham Writers Workshop. This year's judge is Anthony Doerr, author of Cloud Cuckoo Land, All the Light We Cannot See, and more. Visit SelectedShorts.org to learn more and submit by March 10th, 2023 for your chance to win. Thanks for joining me. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Sarah Montague and Jenny Falcon. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our programs presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles are recorded by Phil Richards. Our mix engineer for this episode was Dennis Jacobson. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Blanchett Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achelis and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vita Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. Selected Shorts is also made possible with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by the Isaiah Sheffer Fund for New Initiatives. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producers circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space.